We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to PerpetualChessPod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. Listeners, I hope you know by now this is a basically monthly uh, chess book review slash discussion. Um, and this month, we are going to be discussing a book called Chess Tactics from Scratch by Martin Vetischnik, who is a German FM. And joining me to discuss this, which I would describe as an intermediate level tactics book, we'll be saying lots more about it, obviously. But joining me to discuss this is Steve Wolken, who is a chess enthusiast from the Boston, Massachusetts area, strong member of the chess dojo, working hard on his game, and volunteered to discuss this book, which he has said has really revolutionized his chess. So I'm happy to welcome Steve to the show and to discuss the book. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Ben. I'm glad to be here. Steve, how did I do with your name? I forgot to run it I by know, you before we, we started. I know, it's funny. We spoke about how to pronounce the author's name, and I didn't give you an update on mine. It's actually a long I, so well-kind most of the time. But people frequently get it wrong, so I, re- I respond to both. 
Okay. Well, my apologies, but fine. <laughs> we have no choice but to go on. So, Steve, could you tell us a little bit more about your chess journey to date, and um, and then obviously, eventually, we'll get to why you chose this book, Chess Tactics from Scratch, which I had not read, but I did love. Yeah. Um, briefly. Uh, so I I'm 43 now. I learned chess when I was a kid in elementary school. I think I didn't play a ton. I played just with friends growing up, and we. I think one of my friends had that the little Bobby Fisher teaches chess book that, you know, everyone had. Um, but I mostly didn't know you could actually study chess. And so once I graduated college and had a career and some more free time instead of endless homework, I decided to study chess. So around age 27 or so, I um, got sort of seriously into it, started going to tournaments and played pretty seriously from about 2006 to 2010 or so. And I you know, that was kind of a sort of a fun era, right? Because it was sort of, you know, that was during Michael Delmaza and Chess Cafe and Toilet Gate and like, you know, all the, <laughs> all the there's a certain golden era, I feel like for me of, of that time, but quickly got to a plateau, sat there for a bit, went to another plateau, barely scraped 1700 uh, after, you know, starting off at like eight or 900 when I first started. So, you know, good improvement, but then I kind of got stuck and I just felt like I had other things I wanted to do and, and staying even at that level felt like running in place. And so I, I quit. And then during the pandemic, my sister, actually, after she saw Queen's Gambit, asked me to help her get better at chess. And so I dove back in and recently started going back to tournaments. And um, yeah, finally, after 18 months of knocking off the rust, I feel like maybe I'm back to my old strength, which is, as we speak, roughly, you know, kind of mid-class B range. But... Okay. Well, yeah, a familiar story. I mean, as we've come up many times, chess comes and goes for people, but but we're glad to have you back. and back studying. And let's bring it forward to Chess Tactics from scratch, Steve. Uh, what struck you about this book? Why did you uh, offer it in particular when you reached out about um, potentially co-hosting? Yeah. And I, you know, it's funny, I didn't even know that you did that, but I heard one of your podcasts, someone mentioned that you asked them what book they would choose or something like that. And I said, oh, well, I've never heard anyone on the show mention this book, and I think it's interesting. And so for me, it's, you know, I'm one of those people who really likes the kind of weirder chess books like the, you know, the Rousen and the um, Under the Surface, even though it's definitely above me. And, you know, that, that the, the sort of philosophy chess overlap and that kind of stuff always attracted me. And this book is not quite like that, but very different from any other book that I've read, which is kind of why it stuck out to me. You know, it's, it is a tactics book, but it is not, you know, I, I describe it more like it's like an academic textbook, almost trying to deconstruct and understand how these tactics function, like what makes them work, why they work. You know, it's got little, I guess, you know, not to, not to invoke a book that everyone seems to hate. And I honestly have not read more than a couple pages of, you know, it reminds me a little bit of some of the pawn power in chess where he introduces a lot of lingo hmm. that, that does make sense most of the time, but he, you know, he defines the chains of a pin as a, you know, all these, you know, gives new names to everything. But I've never seen anyone try and talk about tactics this way before. And it really worked for me because I think this way, I think kind of schematically somehow. And so it just changed how I look at the chessboard while I'm playing a game. And I'm not going to say that I've incorporated you know, even more than a couple of the things in this book into my game yet, but it, it's kind of shown me the way for where to go next for how to kind of think further ahead, maybe, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and again, a couple things to add. Number one, it's good that you did catch on that I'm always open to volunteers for co-hosting um, these shows in particular. Obviously, I'd love to interview everyone on Perpetual Chess, um, but I only interview one person per week. The the book recaps. Um, if there's a certain book you love, be sure to reach out. Um, I'll put a, there's a link 
that goes to a form uh, that I'll put in the show description. And if you're interested, and there's even if it's like Steve, if there's just one or two books that you'd love to talk about, if you have the opportunity, I'm always open to new suggestions. And yeah, I hadn't read this, but I knew it was Quality Chess uh, Publishing. I knew it was available on Chessable. So I had a feeling it would be good. I liked the idea of uh, building your chess tactics from scratch. And it has been recommended once or twice. Um, on the show, I forgot to double check who, but I believe it might have been from John Bartholomew, uh, one of the obviously Internet's preeminent chess teachers. Um, and in reading it, which I now have, um, I totally see where you're coming from, especially for adult learners. Um, it, I think it does a fantastic job sort of breaking tactics down to their core elements. I would say the ideal target audience is 1,500 to 2,000 or so. We can talk about that later. But Steve, I think you had a quote from uh, I.M. Tibor Coroli, who is a prolific author, who apparently was also one of Mark, Mar, Martin Vetishnik's teachers early in his chess development um, that talks a bit about the background. Yeah. Um, so this is from the forward to the book, which I mentioned to you, I think maybe I didn't even read the first time through. Um, and so he's talking about having, you know, Martin asked him to write this forward. And uh, so he reads the book and and he says that, um, well, I'll just start uh, pick up in the middle. He, he, he gives, he's explaining why he chose to do this. And he says, uh, the second reason is different. Um, I start working with pupils when they have already reached a high level, which means I can find a style from my pupil according to his or her natural talent and then pass on the required technical knowledge. However, I rarely work on combinations. In contrast, Martin learned chess quite late and worked hard at it, which gives him great insight into the difficulties of improving in the same way that adults who become fluent in a foreign language see it differently from native speakers. And I think that makes a lot of sense, and it really caught in my ear because I have uh, my friend... Um, uh, Chris Senhouse is a, a, a guy who has been learning chess with me and my other training buddy, Adam. And he is a teacher and he th said that he thinks the biggest thing about people who learn chess early is that they become, they get a fluency that he, he also mentioned to me. He, he hasn't read this book, but he used the same analogy about fluency in a language. And that people who learn so young just become fluent in a different way than people who learn as adults and that maybe we should appreciate this more. And it seems really apt to me. And I think I am, um, you know, to any chess authors or would-be chess authors listening who feel like they fit that profile, I would love to read your books <laughs> and find out how you how you got good at an older age. Yeah, it's something that uh, adult improver extraordinaire Neil Bruce, shout out to Neil and I have discussed as well, this, this similarity between foreign languages. And, you know, he and I mentioned I learned chess at 12, which um, I was just late, like just early enough where to me, it still feels fairly native. And it's only in my work as a podcaster and teacher that I've seen how much more challenging even little things like learning the coordinates um, can be as an adult learner. And now I totally get that. So yeah, and Martin Viteshnik, um, I hope, who knows how we're pronouncing it, but we're doing our best here um, as non-German speakers. But just to give a little more info about his background. So yeah, according to his quality chess bio, he started chess at 25. Um, and he made it to FM. So he's actually someone I should try to interview as an adult improver. He made it in a span of not that long, five to 10 years. And in reviewing his FIDE rating history, he hung it up at some point. I think he's still a chess trainer, but he's not actively playing anymore. But anyway, um, he writes, the most dramatic increase in playing strength, even for experienced tournament players, are achieved by the systematic acquisition of knowledge. So as to Steve's point, you know, he really tries to break things down block by block, you know, really explain like 
uh, different tactics. Um, their core elements. We'll be giving some examples as we go on. Um, of course, regular listeners have heard me mention the chess steps books, and in this that sense, they did remind me of the chess steps, which obviously I'm a big fan of. But if anything, these books, uh, this book, it it gets to the core elements of chess quicker. Chess steps is obviously amazing, but it's aiming to take you from zero to 2200, whereas this is a narrower range, so it's more targeted, and I think he does a fantastic job explaining uh, basic tactics. I mean, not basic, but giving the basics of tactics. Yeah, I, I suspect that there are some people who would open this book and and be unhappy with it because of this sort of very, I don't know, perhaps overly intellectualizing this approach, maybe, I mean, which is a strange thing, I guess, to say about chess. But it's very... It's very much a kind of engineer's approach, I think, to thinking about this stuff. Um, one of the other things, actually, I wanted to mention just the physicality of the book. I know you you have the digital version, I think, right? But not the paper. Yeah, I'm reading it on Forward Chess, okay. where it's also available. So I have a physical copy of the second edition. And I guess we should say that the first edition has a different title and different content, actually, confusingly. Um, but the second edition, um, you know, Quality Chess, <laughs> the name seems to be true in multiple ways. This book is physically... Well, you know, gorgeous and also just durable. I've been carrying it around with me, beating it to heck, and it is, you know, very sturdy, which I appreciate. Um, you know, Quality Chess always has such good content and, and you know, printing. Uh, but he uses diagrams in a very different way. I don't know if we should talk about that now or not. Um, sure. So, you know, most chess books have just your standard diagram with boards and pieces. At least I haven't seen many um, that, that do this, and I tend to be, I'm a bit of a book nut, you know, the overlap of chess player and book person in general means I just have way too many chess books. But I haven't seen many that that do adding as many extra lines and circles and squares and arrows and you know hiding parts of the board or or you know just trying to really highlight exactly what he's trying to call out to you. Um, and I guess unfortunately one of these one of the problems with this book is it's very difficult to describe audio because it is just example after example after example of tactical you know, brilliancy, which you just can't relate. <laughs> um, but yeah, he's very, very good at, at creating these kind of diagrams along the way that point out exactly what he's he's trying, the point he's trying to make. And I'll also say that for someone who doesn't have great blindfold or any blindfold skills, um, uh, this is one of the few chess books I can actually really do without a board at all. Um, for me, there's enough diagrams and um, it doesn't go too far ahead from anywhere that, that you actually need a board most of the time. Yeah, although that is why I decided to read it on Forward Chess, but my impression agreed with that. And just to go a little deeper on what you were describing, Steve, in terms of like the little diagrams within the diagrams, it would be something like there's a, and he gives an example of like a Mikhail Tall tactic leading to a, a, a checkmating sequence, basically. But he systematically draws arrows showing how like, okay, you know, this knight is covering this square, so he deflects the knight. And this rook is covering this square, so he deflects the rook. So he has like a mini diagram where he shows like which defensive pieces are covering which squares and how tall like system systematically decoys each of them. So it's a lot of little stuff like that, just the nuts and bolts of, of uh, tactics. Yeah, and, um, and it is fantastic. Um, so... We've got more to talk about. We'll tell you what the chapters are, um, go a bit more into where you can read this book, and then we're just going to get into some of our, our favorite quotes about it. But first, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. Our friends at aimchess.com continue to roll out new features all the time. Some of the latest include a training room where you can work on tactics, advantage capitalization, 
blunder prevention, tons of stuff. They've got their own analysis board. And of course, they still have my favorite feature, which enables you to do large-scale review of your games and look for patterns that recur, review the mistakes that you've made in your games, set goals, and the list goes on. Uh, Aim Chess is well worth checking out. And if you decide to subscribe, please use the code PERPETUAL30 or use the link in the show description to save 30% on aimchess.com. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. And we are back. And just to provide a few more details, as Steve mentioned, this is a second edition. And originally, this book was called Understanding Chess Tactics. John Shaw, in an additional introduction, John Shaw, of course, being the co-founder, a co-founder of Quality Chess Books, along with uh, Jakob Algar, described that book as a classic in its own right. And from what I understand, they didn't change it all that much. They added, so he describes 11 tactical elements, um, and they added a chapter about candidate moves. And then uh, there are 300 puzzles that were not in the edition called Understanding Chess Tactics. And it turns out in sharing a few puzzles, which uh, got rave reviews on Twitter, just a couple of the puzzles, as Steve and I will be talking about, I was just totally blown away by how cool they were and shared them on Twitter and, you know, obviously said where they came from. Uh, And Jakob shared that in the updated version, he's the one who came up with the uh, 300 puzzles. In terms of what the chapters are, as Steve said, they describe the different types of tactics. Steve, uh, do you have handy what the chapters are? Could you read uh, their chapter titles? Yes, I have that in front of me. So we've got... Uh, so chapter one is called Becoming Familiar with the Pieces, which is... Well, let's just go through the titles. Becoming Familiar with the Pieces, the Pin, the Discovered Attack, the Reloader, the Double Attack, Overloading, Mate, Gain of Tempo and Intermediate Move in one chapter together, the X-Ray Attack, uh, opening and closing lines of communication. Chapter 11 is status examination. And then the candidate moves chapter is 12. And then we've got 300 exercises all grouped together at the back of the book. Yeah. Um, it is. So oh, as Steve oh, sorry, said, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to quickly add, yeah, some of these terms were original to me, such as the reloader and status examination. Uh, what were you going to say? I Steve? was going to say that it's it's... For a book that I really love, the content of the structure is in some ways a little odd. In some way, you know, that it's it's a subset of the tactical f- motifs you might have imagined could end up in a book like this, and some of them are kind of, um, you know, like double attack and um, I think there's a bunch of discovered attack and double attack examples that seem like they could be either either way, right? So, but the um, and that first chapter, becoming familiar with the pieces, is is kind of. I, I recall it being slightly strange um, to me in terms of what it was trying to get at. I think it's just, he tries to make sure that we understand the tactical capabilities of each piece, which are sort of obvious if you start listing them, but then you think a little deeper and you find out that it's a little bit profound sometimes when you actually try and pay attention to what the actual possibilities of each piece are. Yeah. 
Yeah, I hear you. The The chapters could be a bit out of order for sure. Um, and maybe one or two of them could have been excised or combined in some fashion. But I feel like that's often going to be true of books. Um, one, one thing I did like about the chapters is uh, he's got great summaries with bullet points at the end of every chapter. Um, I'm o- always a fan of that as regularly uh, comes up here on these um, book discussions. Um, we alluded to this earlier, but we should mention, um, I, I think... 1500 to 2000 is like, you should definitely read this book. And uh, on either end of that, it's slightly more optional. But Steve, I believe you you had some thoughts about like, people lower than that potentially also reading it. Yeah, I think that, um, well, two things. One, I, um, I've been sort of also describing this book to some people as almost like a love letter to beauty in chess in some ways that, the, you know, the and I think um, in the introduction, Martin himself says that these are, you know, what we all think we should do all the time, right, is every time we come across an interesting position, we should throw it into a chess-based document somewhere or something like that and actually collect these things. Well, he actually did it, and this book mm-hmm. is the result, you know, however many years later. Um, and so all of these examples are brilliant. Um, you know, I, I can't I can't describe them, <laughs> again, over, over the podcast, but, you know, um, just amazing, gorgeous examples of motifs working together in just the right way that leave you kind of amazed that these things are on the board. And to me, anyone who, you know, not every chess player has this appreciation for the aesthetics of chess, but I think most most or many do. And I think that anyone who can understand a combination, you know, anyone could, who can appreciate, you know, the opera game and see how gorgeous it is, could look at some of these examples and just step through them, not even try and figure them out, but just step through them and appreciate this is how it is done, right? That that it's it actually reminds me of a video that um, I am Toth put up a number of months ago about pattern recognition in chess, where he sort of tried to explain that it's not how a lot of people think it is, right? It's not just the patterns right there on the board and you have to see it and recognize it. I mean, yes, if it is, you do. But the players who are at the next level here, they see it, they see the pattern components swirling around many moves in advance and then find ways to bring them to make them more likely to happen or to edge that direction. And these are just so many examples that look like that. And so it really, if you don't feel like as a player, you understand what those things look like and where they develop, you know, in each of these positions, Martin begins at the spot where it's starting, you know, the, the storm clouds are gathering for whatever, and then shows you what went next. And so it's just a, a good, you know, whether or not you could ever find these things when they appear in your game, it can help you at least appreciate that maybe they are there. And if you remember even a couple of these bullet points, maybe you'll find a tactic, you know? So I, I think, you know, it, you know, Certainly, it's going to be mostly over your head below 16 or 1500, but I would say down to 13 or 12, it's worth skimming it at least a little bit. I mean, don't don't buy more chess books than you need, but, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and and he's a good teacher. He does a good job explaining the, the moves. So, And the way the book is presented is, aside from the puzzles, he pretty much shows you a position and doesn't even explicitly say, like, stop and try to solve this. He just kind of, boom, feeds you the answer. And I do think if you're below 1500 with his explanations, you'll be able to appreciate the beauty in these puzzles. It's just when you get to the puzzle section uh, at the end, you may not get any of them. Um, But nonetheless, I mean, as as Steve alluded to, it's on a short list of books that really um, uh, really demonstrates the beauty of chess. And I think Steve and I both would struggle a bit to to describe what makes these puzzles special, but just to to try to 
to encapsulate the ideas a little bit. A lot of it has to do with what I've called before uh, invisible chess moves. I believe there's a there's a book by that name. So basically these these moves that the brain is hardwired kind of not to see, um, either because a move is so counterintuitive, whether it be moving a piece that appears to be pinned to a queen or moving a piece backward or moving a piece that at first glance looks like you might be allowing checkmate. Um, stuff like that where... Th- uh, counterintuitive moves, I think, are part of what can make um, a chess book, a chess move aesthetically pleasing. Um, and there's just so many classic examples of that. So I, I, like Steve, I struggle to explain it, but that's that's the best I can do. And on that note, one thing I should add is, aside from obviously uh, 1,500 to 2,000 players who for whom this book would be firmly in their wheelhouse and players lower who are ambitious or just want to appreciate it, it's also a great book for any chess trainer. Um, you know, if you just like sometimes uh, when I've done lessons over the years, you just want to show your students something cool. Um, and if that's the mood that you're in or the mood that your student is in, then this book is a great resource for just finding puzzles that are cool. I hadn't even thought about that, but that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, I think um, just maybe to try and maybe give a brief idea of how he breaks down one of these uh, types. Uh, is, do you think that would be a thing? that? Yeah, let's So try I think it. that maybe maybe <laughs> I'd like to maybe do the pin and then maybe reference the reloader just because that one was so unique. But so, you know, the pin, obviously everyone knows what a pin is, right? But he really breaks it down and says, well, let's actually think about what really is a pin, right? It's a chain of you know, usually three points, right? You've got the the piece that is at the target, the one, the vulnerable one, like the king that you're pinning a piece to, and you have the pinner and then the, the pinny, I guess. you might, I don't know if that's the term he uses, but these are the ideas, right? And then he goes on to sort of point out situations where maybe only two of the three components are in place yet, but that the point is that then you need to see that there's a possible pin here. Like the possible, you know, with two of the three components in place, alarm bells should be going off saying, hey, Let's look for a way to bring something into the third spot, and um, and so he he spent some time on each of the spots in the chain and and what the ramifications are of trying to manipulate that spot in certain kinds of ways, and it gets kind of very specific, but just again, it's an upside down, different kind of way of thinking about these things uh, in a way that I haven't before. Uh, does that make sense to you, Ben? More or less. I mean, I, I think you should keep trying. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, but it is difficult. So the the reloader, I think, is probably easier to yeah, explain. Do you want to tackle that, that one? That one is a new one to me also. So he named the reloader this idea that sometimes in a position you can have a a tactically interesting way to keep putting pieces on the same square. And so the simplest example is if you have, you know, let's say you're threatening a fork somewhere and the spot gets defended and you can bring another knight in to make the same threat, right? So now you've got two pieces that can land on the same square with the same tactical ability. You can just keep keep showing up, right? Like, you know, like a bad apple or something, right? And so it just makes it harder for the square to get defended. And then he goes on to kind of explain, well, you can reload with a different sort of piece too. But in those cases now, it's much more complicated because you have to realize and make allowances for the fact that the first piece that was on the square had different abilities. And this gets back to that kind of first chapter about becoming the familiar with the pieces. You know, let's say a knight on a square that then gets reloaded by a bishop. Well, it has to work out that the first component of the tactic works with a knight there, but then replacing with a bishop is also equally good. And he has examples of where this where this happens and then tries to back it up and show it approaching further out. And then to give an example of one of these kind of bits of wisdom that, that show up in the end of chapter summaries, I think the reloader is a good one for that because, um, for example, he says something like, the second piece occupying the square does not have to be of higher value than the first piece. 
but its action has to compensate for the last of the first feast. So it's, these are kind of weirdly fancy sounding things, but when you start to think about them, they make a lot of sense. Um, you know, or example, two pieces of the same kind are able to occupy a square without any loss of impact when it is only defended once. Right, so this is that case of, you know, I want to put a knight on a square if you only have one defender. As long as I can put a second knight there, it's just as good, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a really cool chapter. Really cool examples in it. And again, um, we're, there's, there's only so much we can, we can say about it, um, but uh, definitely recommend it. Um, I, I think you guys will be, your, your mouth will be agape at some point with some puzzle in this book. Um, if not many puzzles in this book. And just to um, to try to put into words sort of the objective of the book, um, I did want to share a quote that he uses where he says that one of the goals of the book is to help you safeguard against illusions, uh, getting back to the concept of uh, invisible moves where you know your, your brain is not wired to necessarily notice a certain pattern. He's trying to help you sort of break that down. Yeah, do you remember what he had to say about, um, he discusses this idea of tactical bases uh, when he's sort of saying that you have, you know, you're considering a, a, let's see, you have a knight that could go to several squares. You have to look at all the squares it can go to and evaluate them as potential tactical bases, sort of like a transfer point almost, or like uh, Naroditsky would call it Frankfurt Airport or something like that, where, you know, you contemplate putting a piece on a square, but then have to also look at all the places it could get to from that square and always be aware of all of those things at the same time. Like a lot of what he suggests that we could do to take advantage of these things seem too difficult for me, right? Like, can I possibly be aware of all these things at the same time? Definitely not, <laughs> right? Um, right? Yeah. Uh, also, I want to mention, you mentioned that he, uh, you know, doesn't ask you to try and solve these examples. And I, in fact, would say that some of them you shouldn't even try because there's plenty of diagrams where the diagram pops up and it says black to move, but black is about to make a fatal blunder, right? The black to move right, is actually the bad yeah. move. So, so if you sit there and stare at it and think, oh, this is a puzzle with black to move, you're going to be a little sad. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's a good point. And that actually makes for a pleasant reading experience because you can kind of just enjoy the show, as Agadmater would say. <laughs> like you're you're not like constantly pausing trying to find moves. You're just um you're just reading and appreciating um these tactics and you know benefiting from the the step-by-step um explanations. Um so Steve, we need to take one more break and then I think we should just I mean the book is well written. I'm not sure if it was originally written in um German or English, but uh, he's got e- either the translator or he did a good job. So I would like to share a few quotes uh, before we get out of here with the um, the firm instructions to go get this book. But we do want to share a little bit more when we get back from, from this break. Listeners, as I record this, the chess world's attention is turned to the Chess Olympiad, one of my favorite tournaments of all just Tons of strong players all under one roof representing their countries. And if you are a Chessable Pro member, we've got good news for you. National Master Brian Tillis is making a course based on the games of the Olympiad. I could tell you from past experience, there's tons and tons of tactics flowing from these games. You just have so many players playing each other, varying levels, that there's always lots to learn. And Brian is an excellent teacher. So if you're not a pro member, you might want to take this opportunity to sign up to receive that and other perks. And if you are, be sure to grab it, as well as the other new courses that Chessable's dropping all the time, including a new one on the Triangle Slav from Christoph Selecki and Erwin Lemie, um, new courses from Judith Polgar, and the list goes on. So be sure to go to chessable.com and check out what is available both for free and for purchase. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we are back. And as we said, there's only so much that can be said about this book, but we do have a few favorite quotes, a few favorite chapters that we'd like to discuss and try to give you guys a few nuggets that you can uh, take away, even without uh, having yet read this book, or maybe you already have, who knows. So anyway, Steve, what, what are some of your favorite elements of chess tactics from scratch? Well, I guess just to start with some of the the maybe a sillier point. Um, you mentioned the writing is is pretty good and also quite entertaining in a lot of cases. Um, you know, he doesn't miss a chance to kind of make an amusing comment here or there about the players involved or the, the choices of the players, or even um, the very first sentence of chapter eight, which is the gain of tempo chapter, he says, and I don't even know if this, I didn't fact check uh, him here, but he says, Napoleon once pointed out that, quote, from the sublime to the ridiculous is but a step, end quote. In chess, we call this step a tempo, and just like yeah. you know, the, just, it's just so good. And um, but you know, again, some people are going to roll their eyes at that. Um, and uh, you know, another one that I, well, I, okay, I don't know if you had anything kind of just uh, flavor stuff that you wanted to share before we go on to more serious things. Yeah, there was another one that I highlighted. Yeah, just just sort of a a, a way of wor- way with words, a nice turn of phrase where he's showing an example of a queen being trapped. And and he writes, uh, the only place the queen can go is back in the box. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So I don't actually remember which chapter this is in. I wrote it down without a page reference. But he has a point that says, be on the lookout for squares you wish you could occupy, even if they seem impossible to occupy, right? This is the kind of you were saying about invisible moves. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that might get us into maybe the status examination chapter a little bit. I, I don't know if you had other specific quotes to share first. Yeah, no. Well, the status examination was my favorite chapter, so let's get to it. And it's funny because it doesn't roll off the tongue, this idea of status ex- examination. But basically, it's he's he feels like he's introduced all of the basic tactics. Um, as as Steve alluded to when he read off um, the, the list of chapters, um, after he's gotten through the pin, the discovered attack, the reloader, the double attack, overloading, etc., he gets to status examination, which is sort of a way to sort of uh, have your antenna up. And I'll read his introduction which is to this chapter, which is the status examination does exactly what its name says. It takes a close look at the status of each piece on the board. Principally, you have to look at two things with each piece. First, you have to find out its current status, whether it's attacked, defended, or being pinned, etc. Then you have to see this piece as an element of a picture, which is related to other elements. Ask yourself how the status of this piece changes the status of other pieces. If you find out, for example, that a knight is pinned against your king, the status of the knight is absolutely pinned. The king cannot be exposed to an attack. Consequently, the status of all the other pieces that were formerly defended by the knight is affected. If they were only defended by this knight, they are now on pre, meaning intake, if they are attacked. And he goes on, So, but that does give you a flavor of sort of just how um, how detailed the explanations are. And mainly the reason, like the words notwithstanding, I just thought the examples in this chapter were um, even more mind-blowing than the examples in the other chapters. 
Yeah, and for me, uh, so this is a concept I've thought about a lot because I would say that one of my perpetually annoying failures as a chess player is that I tend to blunder a lot, that I, I don't have a handle on positional awareness all, some of the time. And so I'm often working for way, through looking for ways to organize my thinking on my move or during a game. And seeing you know someone listing ways to maybe conceptualize these things um, and the steps to go through to pay attention to what's going on and things to ask your pieces. It actually kind of reminded me a little bit of the talking to your pieces stuff that, that Jonathan Rousen would talk about where, you know, Vedashnik doesn't say it the same way, but he is sort of asking you to take each piece and consider its prospects alone first, which to me is similar to the idea of talking to that piece somehow. Yeah. And he gives even a checklist. So he says, so before each move, you should look at the following what is the status of each piece? Is it defended? Does it have duties to perform? Restricted movement, etc. Which squares can be occupied? Here you have to check for direct occupation and indirect occupation. And then three, are there further connections of pieces and squares in more complex positions? Um, meaning as you as you look down the line. And one thing we should have mentioned earlier, probably, is he describes somewhere in the book that the the one of the overarching goals of this book is to take you from sort of recognizing a tactic to spotting a two to four move combination um, because he describes that's how most games are decided which again at the 1500 to 2000 level I think is and uh, for in that case over 2002 um, I think is definitely definitely true um, and he finds these status examinations to be like a good guidepost to make sure make sure or at least help you miss fewer of those tactics. Well, I think that, yeah, I think you're exactly right about that. And, you know, it's funny, you also mentioned, um, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but you mentioned something about having your antenna up at some point. And I don't know if you've run across this other book that seems a little similar to this one called Tune Your, Tune Your Chess. Yeah. Uh, I forget the title. Like, can you, do you know it? Fine Tune Your Chess Antenna by Neiman, I think. Yeah. And it's, um, it, I looked at a sample of that while getting ready for this because someone else asked me if they were kind of the same idea. And they seem related, but v very different sorts of books. But, I think a great thing about this book that just, you know, as we've been talking came to me is that you know, often this complaint is, you know, from players, okay, I know how to find the tactics when there's a puzzle. I don't know how to know when to look in a game, right? And so that's the kind of first step you start to have these red flags of undefended pieces and whatever. So maybe you get to that step and now you're at least able to sort of spot the tactics when they're at least present in their more primitive or direct form. And you start to then wonder, well, what does it look like to spot them from slightly further away or set them up? And I think that, you know, because that by its nature, you're learning about new moves that were good that you didn't see before. So there are going to be moves that were, before you learn about them, will be surprising, I would think. And a lot of them seem to be these kind of moves to empty squares that you don't realize are important or you know, the, the stuff that you just don't know to look for until you see that that's how it operates. And this is a great book to kind of show you, look, once you've got this other level down, this is what the next level looks like. You need to start to be able to see these these moves that look impossible or these setup moves you know, look and see when pieces are actually about to be overworked and then force them to be overworked by, you know, whatever. Um, it definitely feels to me like it, it, instead of just doing a bunch of puzzles that are progressively harder and hoping that something sticks, I feel like this shows you something about specifically a skill you need to become adept at to make that leap. And I think that that is useful to hear because without knowing what I'm trying to learn next, it's hard for me to kind of really go forward i think hopefully that makes sense yeah yeah well said um to, and and then there's the 12th chapter which 
I mean, do we have anything more? Uh, do you have anything more to add, Steve, about the uh, status examination? No, I don't. I don't think so. Because the twelfth chapter, I found it interesting that this is one that was added along with Agart's puzzles to the second edition, and it's about candidate moves. So it's just an interesting twist because everything else is so sort of um, tactic based and sort of. Uh, the status examination starts to move into the um, like the first, the tactics chapters are explanations. And then he starts to, with status examination to go into how to think, but then he really obviously goes deeper um, when he's talking about candidate moves in the final chapter, which obviously building uh, listeners who either have read think like a grandmaster by Kotov or possibly heard uh, my discussion with Dr. Christopher Shabri on a previous book recap podcast, this idea of um, selecting finalists to be your move. And he sort of builds on what Kotov has written so many years ago and sort of tries to tie it together for like how to approach thinking about chess. What did, what did you think of this chapter, Steve? It's, I guess it's a chapter that is very tantalizing to me because I would say that, you know, probably like most people, many of my miscalculations come from missing a possible candidate that didn't look, you know, like there's this filter going on automatically in my head all the time, right? Where apparently I'm not seeing every legal move. I'm, you know, my brain is throwing some of them away too soon. And um, this is something that uh, a coach I work with also, you know, tells me about. He, he says that I shouldn't do that. And well, okay, easier said than done, right? And so, yeah, I mean, I would love to have the right moves pop to me sooner. And and reading through this and seeing that this, it's, I've rarely seen a, a the thought process of a game laid out like this before. It, you know, I, have you read anything else quite like this chapter? Uh, I mean, it is reminiscent of of Think Like a Grandmaster, obviously. And of course, as Dr. Shabri and I discussed, um, Jonathan Tisdall's Improve Your Chess Now kind of uh, tried to pick up the mantle some 30 years after Think Like a Grandmaster was written. So those are the primary two books um, that come to mind. Uh, listeners who heard my review, our review of Think Like a Grandmaster will have heard that it wasn't like overly effusive. Honestly, the, the book is a bit like drinking from a fire hose. The um, the exercises and the calculation discussed is extremely deep. So for anyone, I think below 21, 2200, it's uh, quite challenging. And I think for even anyone above that level in this day and age, you know, the day and age of tactics trainers and so on and so forth, um, it feels inefficient. So um, I hadn't read much else like it, but I felt like this, it didn't, I could sort of, I don't know, maybe there was some sort of inherent bias. Like I knew that it was added later, but I felt like I could tell it was added later. But on the other hand, I, I agreed overall with his points, which I can get back to in a second, Steve, but I don't know if you have anything to add. Uh, No, I think you should go on with that. Okay. So the two points that he wants to make, I think primarily are that whether you agree with what Kotov says about exactly how to select candidate moves or not, the the important concept is that you need to think about having a way to organize your thinking generally, as Steve has alluded to. So that's kind of one of the main goal of the chapter is like, hey, here's one way, uh, look for some moves, and then start calculating them. And then the other point that he mentions like at least twice is that you're not necessarily, they don't have to be good moves. It's okay to select a move and have it turn out to be bad. So he just wants you to select a few finalists and then uh, begin calculating them. Um, 
And I believe it's in that chapter where he again mentions that most games are decided by two to four move tactics. So that's where I do think it's uh, more digestible than think like a grandmaster. Yeah, and I, I have certainly been familiar with Think Like a Grandmaster. I have not read it, but I have I've read the first few chapters of Tisdall's book and uh, definitely remember his sort of... He seemed to feel like Kotov couldn't have possibly been 100% serious <laughs> about some of what he says. Right. Right? That, you know, that we've all had this experience of, you know, you're, you're on your third possible move and you see some resource you hadn't even realized you need to go back and, and incorporate into the... You know, this is one of the most common complaints, I think, about Kotov's, uh, you know, Evaluate move A to the end, evaluate move B to the end, and you don't go back in his the way he describes it. It seems like right, but um, yeah, there's another book I have which I've I've um, I can't find it on my shelf right now to get the title right. It's a Soltis book that has to do with trying to figure out how to think in chess, and he has a chapter or a couple chapters on. Oh, it's called the Inner Game of Chess, actually, um, and he also goes through this kind of you know how do we come up with the moves right because it you know. All too often, I feel like I'm just staring at the board, hoping something interesting jumps out at me, right? And sometimes it does, but um, it's also not efficient to try and you know calculate every legal move, right? I'm not a computer, so. Right. Uh, yeah. 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 I haven't read Soltis's book, but um, but yeah, I mean, definitely you can't calculate everything, so some sort of guidelines about how to prune are definitely appreciated, and I think he does. Uh, Viteshnik does a decent job. Uh, providing them here yeah. um so i feel like we've we've said basically what we like about this book right steve is there anything to add about what we like before we get to our minor quibbles which in this case are quite minor at least from my end. yeah i don't i don't think i have much else to add it's um yeah it's it's i i recommend it to anyone who um certainly anyone in this level strongly recommend oh it's kind of funny actually the same day you emailed me to um uh ask me about uh, you know whether I want to actually come on and do this. Um, it, this book got added to the dojo training program book list, like right at my level or the next tier up on the very same day. So it was kind of funny. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I wonder. I'll have to uh, interface with. Uh, I think it was one of Kosia's recommendations. Kosia. Okay. Because uh, GM yeah. GM Cry seems to mostly suggest that almost all your tactical learnings will come from your own game analysis and the Polgar mates, which <laughs> might be true. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and from your your pages of journaling. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> shout shout out to the dojo. It's it's great. Actually, I, I should say by the way, and I, I was going to say this earlier on that I I love the world that we live in now with the online chess community being so different than it was when I left chess a little over ten years ago. That you know, I don't think if I plateau for you know if I hit my second plateau and get bummed about how hard it is to to move up to the next one, I've got so many friends and acquaintances online now I can go to and get some support or figure out you know. Uh, it's just, there's just so much more, you know, I didn't have any online chess friends. I didn't have any chess friends when I quit chess. Originally, I saw people at the club once in a while and that was it. And um, it's just so much easier to stay in it now with all the, all the, all the online stuff. Yeah. And for any listeners who have not joined an online community like uh, Chess Dojo, definitely encourage you to do so. I finally got to meet Jesse Cry IRL at a tournament recently. And yeah, def- definitely good guys and, uh, and they're doing great work. Um, and of course, there are other options as well. Um, so, yeah, bringing it back to, to Quibbles uh, with this book, I mean, uh, obviously, I'm a huge fan of uh, Jakob Agard's work, and he did reveal that he did these 300 puzzles. Um, I, I guess I just felt then the puzzles, as actually I hadn't noticed, but Steve pointed out to me, um, they, they are ranked in difficulty level from one to five stars. So you can at least sort of 
um, select based on your level and stick to the ones that you think are appropriate. But overall, I would say the puzzles didn't strike me as as targeted as the um, explanations of the tactics um, and even the explanations of the answers. You know, I love when when a book like shout out to Nate Solon and Eugene Perlstein, I love when they really go deep on explaining the answers. Um, and there's, there's not as much of that. So to me, the puzzles, like the book is fully worthwhile without the puzzles, but I'm not positive. The puzzles are like, it's not like you have to read the book and immediately do the puzzles as you might with some other books. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And I, so I, I, th- I told you before we started here that the first time I read this book, um, because the examples in the text are most of them are slightly above me, I feel like, in terms of my ability to actually find the move in, in the in those positions. And I'd heard that these puzzles tended difficult. And so on my first pass, I didn't even attempt them. I just I appreciated the book and took some knowledge from it and, and thought it was good. After you mentioned that you had tried some and found them kind of at a higher difficulty than, than the text, I went in and selectively did a bunch of the one-star ones and found that they were easier even than I expected, actually. And I didn't try the two-star ones yet. Um, but I will say that they were they were of a of a piece at least for me with the, some of the stuff in this in the book where they were not exactly the most typical moves right it's a lot of pieces going to empty squares to distract something which is you know what as again as uh i am toth often says that peace sacrifices on empty squares are some of the hardest moves to see he thinks and i would certainly agree um but so yeah they're they're, they're hard but it's not surprising to me it's interesting that you mentioned that that Agard collected those because it makes sense to me that right uh, the author probably used most of his good examples when making this book in the first place and so then you know i i, I would imagine that the jm agard sort of felt that he had in his you know uh reserve somewhere enough interesting positions to kind of put some puzzles together but they're they're from a different collection a different kind of a goal and so i'm not surprised they're a little different because of that but i don't think that's a, that's not a point against the book exactly they just just don't expect them to be quite the same i think yeah, yeah. And obviously, uh, you know, Thinking Inside the Box is one of my favorite books. I love the Gelfand books from Quality Chess, raved about under the surface. So I have a, a long record of uh, fawning over Quality Chess books. Um, so just to preface that, it did kind of feel like Agar just kind of took 300 pretty good tactical puzzles and just kind of threw them in there. I didn't feel like they were, again, I didn't feel like they were as targeted um, and like as sort of step by step as uh, the rest of the book. Um, and yeah, again, as I as I alluded to earlier, that's that's one sort of um, uh, compatriot of this book. Uh, it reminded me of Chess Steps, only it's uh, much more succinct and much more targeted. Um, but that was pretty much um, my only quibble with the book. And again, you don't have to do the tactics puzzles to begin with. Did did you have others, Steve? Uh, just a couple very small, very small ones. Um, there were a couple times when an explanation I was hoping to find wasn't actually there. There was a, uh, I forget which, uh, there's an example of at least one spot where, you know, he says the first move is, you know, knight g5 or whatever. And the, you know, uh, there was a resignation because of this and that, the other thing, but um, I didn't see what the original threat was, just the consequences that followed on, which obviously were bad. And I somehow never was able to find that original threat and he didn't mention it. Um, so that's, you know, that, some of the examples are pretty deep, I guess, as I would say, because they're, you know, he's, he's seeing these things coming from slightly further away. So they're just more complicated as a result. So sometimes you really have to pay some attention, you know, and look for, do some work you know, along the way, obviously. Um, I think also that, um, if you go to the Quality Chess website and download the sample of this book, 
to start looking around, which uh, you should probably do because I think it contains the most of the pin chapter actually. But it also has this first section, which is uh, it's, it's what is this book about? It's like three or four pages where there's just one diagram for each chapter and a little bit of text. I actually feel that these pages are confusing and misleading to some degree. That that they don't really. To me, reading those pages does not tell me what this book is about, really. And so I feel like someone who goes and pulls that sample and reads those pages may have the wrong idea of what the book is about. And so that's a little bit unfortunate, but again, not a big deal about the book. You just skip those pages and move to the good stuff. Um, so these are really, really okay, tiny yeah. nitpicks, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's, a good, that's a good point. And then... I guess one... Just, oh, sorry. Go ahead. My, my no, least ahead. favorite chapter was the Checkmate chapter, actually. I, I just thought... Somehow the same approach there met, left me feeling like it was much more random because I suppose I've recently done these other checkmate pattern, uh, like the the chessable checkmate patterns manual, of course, which is fantastic. You know, there's 30 or 40 patterns they try to get to. And in, in this book, he kind of goes over some basic generalities of the way a queen and knight work together or the way the rook and bishop work together. But it's not really, it feels much more scattershot to me. I don't know if you had that sense of that chapter. Yeah, I actually had the exact same thought, especially because I, I'm also, as I mentioned before, I'm a huge fan of uh, the Checkmate Patterns Manual on Chessable. Um, and yeah, it's just a um, su supremely win like um, cut down version of that. And that is so comprehensive and so awesome. And I think actually that one, um, you can start at a lower level. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you can, you can start at like 1200, but still go up to 2000 level um so that might be a good precursor to this book generally and then when you do get to this book um you can skip the checkmate patterns chapter if you want although it's not no, it's useless it's good material you know? this is the thing right? again my complaint is not the material is excellent it felt a little more random than some of the other chapters felt a little more tightly themed to me so you know, yeah it's, it's, it's such a it's such a uh such a silly complaint but you know, that's it yeah so I think that's about it on this book. Basically, if you're 1500 to 2000 and you feel like your tactics could use some brushing up or your thinking process could use some tightening up. And I feel like that's basically, you know, I'm not in that rating range, but I feel that way. <laughs> I think everyone feels that way. So yeah, if you haven't read it, definitely uh, firm two thumbs up uh, for this book. Any closing thoughts on it, Steve, before we get to some uh, housekeeping matters regarding the podcast? No, I, I think that we've pretty much covered it and, and, uh, you know, yeah, not a lot else to say. Um, I would love to see people's thoughts of what they think about it, you know, because um, I, I love it, but uh, I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. So I don't know if I'm, if we're the only ones or what, but. Um. Yeah, well, the credit goes to you. I mean, it, again, I, I feel like it was recommended somewhere on the podcast, but so has everything else been. So it had kind of um, escaped my attention until you recommended it. So, one last so, question yeah, for you, actually, one choice. other, this, again, it, from the realm of the minorest quibble possible. Um, I don't think really either of the two titles this book has been published under are, feel like the right title to me, but I don't know what the right title would be. I feel like the second title, I feel like they got closer for sure. I guess the only downside of this title is I've, 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 people have seen me with it and asked me if it would be a good, like true primer, right? And it's definitely not. So from scratch here doesn't mean it's going to take you from scratch on tactics, right? It's sort of, let's break them back down and rebuild them, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a good point. It's a firmly intermediate yeah. book. 
Yeah. And in that sense, understanding chess tactics, I guess, could be con- the original title, I guess, could be considered better. But that's that's even so more, generic. maybe even more confusing, right? I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the right title is, but it's a great book. So, yeah, we'll, ha- we'll have to brainstorm that. Now, a um, couple other matters, um, Steve. So, uh, as you know, uh, I, my guest co hosts are volunteer. They are not compensated for their vast efforts, but I do make a small donation to a chess nonprofit or um, organization of their choosing. So, Steve, what do you choose? Yeah, so I was on my way home from uh, uh, City on the Train today listening to the, the most recent podcast with Tony Ballard and the, the chess and prison tie-in and that you know i want to uh direct the contribution to the gift of chess i think which was the name of the organization uh great yeah i i sent a donation after i donated i mean after i interviewed tony and i'm happy to send another and for any listeners who didn't didn't hear tony's story um the the feedback i've gotten and this is obviously a tribute to tony and to the gift of chess has been amazing i mean it's really you know we're all obsessing about our ratings and, you know, trying to get blood from a stone with these like incremental gains, but it's easy to lose track of uh, what really matters in life. And Tony just um, amazingly upbeat perspective, just had an extremely difficult life, but talk about from scratch, rebuilding his life from scratch. I definitely recommend listeners uh, check that out. And if they haven't already, and I will uh, happily uh, make another donation to the gift of chess. Definitely. Yeah. I'm excited to go listen to the rest of the episode because I had to you know, stop halfway through. Yeah. It's a, it's a, he tells a good story. Um, and uh, Steve, and I, I guess I'll mention first, um, n- the next podcast will be with a historian. I'm excited because we're going to talk about the longest game, which is uh, Grandmaster Jan Timmen, one of my favorite chess authors, magnum opus about the Kasparov um, Karpov World Championship uh, duels over the years. So, uh, I felt I was looking for something world championship oriented in light of the Magnus news, uh, reading through again, people who'd volunteered, um, encourage people, anyone who might be interested in, in co-hosting to, to volunteer. Um, and yeah, I'm going to be doing it with a gentleman named Marco and psyched to talk about that book. One thing I should mention, I'm not positive it will be out in a month. It's a long book. And I, the aforementioned Jakob Agard has graciously sent me his 900-page new book, which I am also reading. So uh, I'll try to do it by next month. But uh, the next book review might not be for two months. But it should be fun whenever we make it happen. Um, and Steve, uh, so we know you're in the dojo. Um, is there anywhere else uh, if people would like to give you feedback? or play a game or whatever uh, that people can reach you? Sure. Um, I am sort of on chess Twitter every now and then uh, as uh, just uh, at Steve Wolkind, my name. Uh, and uh, I play on both chess.com and Lee Chess as Stopped Clock. Uh, and uh, you will see that I am very, very, very bad at Blitz and yet I play it anyway. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, keep fighting the good fight. And of course, you're in the Boston area. So anyone I am, from and that area. Maybe someday I'll even meet the... Uh, venerable neil Brees in person but uh yeah one would think we got to get neil to dust put the books away neil and go play a few tournaments and then maybe you'll meet you'll meet steve although you don't have to fully put the books away but you gotta play too. we apparently played the same section once forever ago as i was leaving chess and he was entering at the uh, metro west chess club in natick but unfortunately they haven't come back since covid they were it was a great boston area club um our clubs in the city are a bit are a bit small these days but the you know, we had it was a you know weekly night game. It was great, and you know looking forward to that coming back. 
Yeah, yeah. I know Neil has mentioned that he's looking forward to that coming back. And of course, when it does happen, you can't miss him since he's like six foot six. So, um, so sooner or later, you'll you'll, uh, you'll be able to spot him. All right, Steve. Well, this has been great. Um, thank you. Thank you again. Really appreciate it. Fantastic recommendation and choice. Um, listeners, as Steve said, you can check out uh, the free sample from Quality Chess's page. And I think Chessable has a free sample as well. Um, so definitely take a look at Chess Tactics from scratch if your interest has been piqued. And uh, Steve, would you like to say your goodbyes as well? Uh, yeah, well, just thanks for having me. It was, it was, um, I was just really happy to be able to tell people about a book I think is really great. So uh, thanks for having me on. And I look forward to continuing to listen to all your excellent shows. Thanks. Appreciate it, Steve. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free Perpetual Chess if that's your preference. So, But most of all, thanks to everyone for listening, and we will catch you all on the next episode. Podcast Network. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.